Hi there. This episode comes with a big fat spoiler alert for Fun City, and especially the Float City arc whose ending we will be discussing in detail. The simplest definition of a monster is it's a a large dangerous entity that is in some way not human. I have some favorite monsters in 5th edition, but the ones that I enjoy playing are the ones who think they're doing the right thing. So to them, they're the heroes. But to everybody else, they're the monster. I mean, we know who our monsters are personally in our personal life. So for me, what a monster is, is someone or something doing harm with purpose, at least in my games. Like that could still be an aboleth or it could be some form of monstrous creature. But like, in my opinion, they still have agency. Like they had a chance to not do the thing they're doing now and they chose to do it anyway. I would say more that monster being antagonist that you're not going to have a conversation with. You got me thinking about my own biases now. Why aren't you having a conversation with them? Why aren't you trying to? Villains don't think they're villains is the thing. And so you're watching someone who in some ways you can sympathize with because, you know, the evil queen was just someone who was wronged and thinks that she deserves whatever it is she's trying to get. In Float City, the emissary. That to me is a monster. It doesn't have a human shape. It is monstrous. It is a thing that is horrific. It causes terror. It is something that is, until you see it, somewhat beyond the the ken of the human mind. I think a villain is something that plots. A villain is at the top of a pyramid that your players work towards. Welcome back to Making a Monster Game Master Edition. Fun City is, I will argue, the best actual play Shadowrun podcast on the internet. And uh, during lockdown, the team transitioned to a super future RPG called Still Fleet for an arc called Float City. And it is GM'd by two extremely talented, very lovely people, Mike Rignetta and Taylor Morris. So guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Mike Rignetta is a writer, host, and theater artist. He was the creator, host, and writer of PBS Digital Studios' multiple Webby Award-winning series Idea Channel, which is where I first heard from him, uh, and has hosted and written digital video for Know Your Meme, Crash Course, and Mental Floss. He is an audio design professional and digital producer for influential companies too numerous to list, and I will add an exemplar of thorough and ordered thought. Uh, your video about stuff on the camera lens showed via Baruch. Don't laugh at me, Taylor. I'm I'm laughing because I have to follow this. <laughs> I'm laughing because my, my, my introduction is going to be, and now Taylor Moore, a podcaster <laughs> who lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> All right, we'll cut to this. Taylor Moore is a writer, performer, and producer. He has been seen on stage at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, writing and hosting True TV's Sex Your Food, producing podcasts for Split Cider, including Rude Tales of Magic, editor-in-chiefing Fortunate Horse Magazine, which is making the world weirder one subway car at a time and creating the phrase chill sitch for which he has won multiple no awards. Uh, and he plays... <laughs> but but many deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I will add, Mike, your video about stuff on the camera lens went through Baruch Spinoza and Richard Garrick and argued that merely understanding something constitutes a form of belief regardless of its previously understood level of fiction or reality, which is the whole reason I felt it critically necessary to have a podcast that untangles the haphazard threads of story that have been stolen for the consensus fantasy universe, which runs D&D. And that has been, up to now, 
the stock and trade of what making a monster does. If you have a long running podcast that releases regularly, you are, to my mind, a professional DM. And professional DMs have a certain level of authority on how monsters are used and what they can do. So that's what we're trying to get at with this short mini-series called Game Master Edition for the show. So I want to hear from you guys how Fun City came to be and what your hopes for the show were. So Taylor and I met playing Shadowrun. It was the first time that we like hung out. Was I was um, running a game with some of his co-workers when he was at Kickstarter. And we did that for a little while. That game sort of petered out in the way that a lot of just games run by adults do. Um, (laughs) But we, um, Taylor had approached me a bunch of times about like doing a podcast because Taylor worked at Kickstarter in the, I forget what your title was. You were like head of, head of podcasting boy. Yeah. I started (laughs) as the receptionist and then I became the head of podcasting comedy. (laughs) (laughs) So Taylor was like, we should do, like, you should do an actual play, like, you should do a show, like, you know, it would be good, there's a lot of appetite for it, the space is really growing, and this was, I mean, this would have been, what, three years ago, three and a half, maybe even four years ago? Yeah, I was, I was in, like, I, I discovered actual play podcast and just became completely enamored of, of it, and it looked, it looked just like this wide open place that was just full of interesting stuff that could be done that not a lot of folks were doing. And I really, I had been, I had, I had been wanting to do podcasts for forever. Before I was at Kickstarter, I tried starting my own like comedy podcast network back when very few people knew what they were. Uh, and, and, and so I, and I was dying to get back, back into the podcasting world. And then I, I've, I then, yeah. And then I discovered actual play and it was like, we got to do this. Like I've, I've got, I've got to do it. Uh, and I just so happened to know um, someone who might have some requisite mic skills, uh, <laughs> uh, some tabletop DMing uh, <laughs> uh, toolkit, and have had, had recently stopped making videos for PBS Ideas Channel. <laughs> uh, so, so Taylor and I talked about it a long time, and like for, we talked about it for a long time. And um, at first, I was like pretty resistant to it, and it just it took me a, a long, a long while to come up with a, the list of things that would. I think make it make make me not so nervous about it. Hmm. And one of the big ones was uh, I was like Taylor, you got to be in the show. And so yeah, then, the original pitch yeah. was that I was going to be in the cast, and it was going to be Mike DMing completely. Yeah, and so I was like, no, like we got to like let's split it, and like what are we going to do? Because it can't just be like okay, we'll do a Shadowrun show. That's going to have a lot of its own challenges uh, for reasons that we will maybe get into, uh, you know, as we <laughs> chat down the road. Um, and so what are we going to do to the show to like get people in because saying Shadowrun is going to actually turn a lot of people away. And so we talked a lot about what the kind of um for lack of a better word gimmicks would be. And one of the things that we settled on was um Taylor being many of the antagonists. Um that like Taylor would basically be as we say it the bad boys and I would be the main GM. And then once we had that, we were like, Oh, okay. That feels like a stat idea feels like a starting place for a show. And then we went out to actually now answer your question. Um, <laughs> uh, like then we just basically started thinking about like, okay, like who, who is going to be in this? Uh, and I mean that it took a while. Uh, I mean, we were talking about who we wanted to be in the show for like, I think, 
a, like a couple long times. Yeah, like a maybe long time. maybe six months. Because what we didn't want to do was, and I'm not saying this is bad. <laughs> we didn't want to be like, all right, let's get a bunch of comedians in here, or let's get a bunch of well-known tabletop people in here, or any like we really wanted to get a mix of people. And when we say mix, we mean like an intellectual mix of like expertise and bias, you know, and stuff like that. A lot of times when we talked about like diversity and casting, what we're talking about was like, what are these people into? What are their realms of expertise? Like, we don't want everyone that has the same voice as every UCB improviser at the time, right? Making the same jokes and references. We want people who can bring things to this that we can't ourselves. Uh, so we talked about, like, who do we know that has this variety of input? And we settled on this Gilligan's Island mix of <laughs> comedians and PhDs and chefs and writers. It's, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you know. And these were all people that were just in our in our networks that we wanted to work with. Uh, yeah, like I had met Jen as a creator in residence at Kickstarter. Um, I knew Bijan from uh, through the same friend that introduced me and Taylor years ago. Uh, shout out to Nicole, patron saint of Fun City. Um, <laughs> uh, Shannon and Nick are in Taylor's network from New York Comedy World. Yeah, and but like, Shannon also was on the PhD track, you know, at the time. Yeah. I knew Shannon because I had done one show of hers years ago called Drunk Science that she puts on here in Brooklyn. That's a fantastic show. Uh, but it was like, oh, well, that's a that's a bullseye. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and ever since I did her show, it's like, I really want to work with Shannon again one day. Uh, and Nick Garcia too is just one of the best improvisers in New York City. It was really then and still just is incredible. He's just so so and and one of the most charming people you can possibly ever hope to meet in life. And and you know and I had just met Bijan out in Portland at XOXO and I had fallen He's in love. He's a tech with journalist at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah like, just, you know yeah. we had we had all sort of run into these people and it just yeah th this was our hot list. <laughs> and I think part of it also is like one of the other things that we talked about when we were coming up with the idea of the show is. I really like uh, futuristic sort of sci-fi things that do not hide that they are about now. Uh, that like, <laughs> it is very like on the sleeve that it's like, we are like really it's set in the future, but really this is right now. And so we wanted to have a group of people who would be able to react. And like Taylor said, like would have interesting things to think and say about the current political climate the current cultural climate the current climate climate uh, and so that was that was a part i think also of like how we how we talked about and reached out to the people that we did is like you know who is involved in what's going on right now yeah jen de la vega was one of those people that was like why in the world is she doing anyone who gets to know jen everyone <laughs> who meets her wants to work with her and be her best friend. Like she just has this force of like competence and imagination and charm. She really has that force where she enters a room and the chemistry of the room changes for the better. <laughs> Not like me. I, you know, I, I'll say that Mike is shaking his head like, oh, you have no idea. It really like I'm shaking my head because I'm thinking when we reached out to Jen, we were like, hey, do you want to be in the show? And she was like, I don't think I'm going to be good at this. I've never played it. I've never played a tabletop role playing game before in my life. And then she showed up and just crushes it left and right. It's wild. Mm -hmm. She's maybe the most natural, immediate role player that I've ever had at a table. It's wild. I don't know how yeah. she does it. I hope that I'm not harping on Jen to the detriment of all of your other players who are in their own right exceptional. But I will say that Jen de la Vega could read the back of a cereal box in Marcus's voice and I would listen for <laughs> hours. Yeah. Yeah. 
what made Shadowrun the game of choice for Fun City? Mike Rugnetta did. Mike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I, I like it despite all of its various flaws as a system. And I think that it is a good setting in which to talk about now and the world as it actually exists, which is, um, you know, something that I like to do. There's just, there's... <laughs> Uh, again, a blessing and a curse. There's so much material in Shadowrun to work with <laughs> that it really, yeah, it really just lets you do a lot. Uh, and I think also part of me is like, was interested in the challenge. Like, what do you, how do you turn this very complicated, huge system that has canon, that has decades and decades of lore that has like legal decisions that are part of like how the game is written and how it works. You know, how do you turn that into like a, a compelling narrative show? I thought it would be a, like a fun, yeah, fun challenge and a good material to work with narratively and story-wise. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to back Mike up on especially the setting. Like, you know, you people critique Shadowrun and they ought to. But man, that setting rules. It's really yeah. fun to play in the Shadowrun world. And I also, I think we joked and thought it would be funny. We were like, oh, and we'll set it in New York. That'll be funny. That'll be good. But Shadowrun is one of a few systems where you could set a game in New York. Like canonically, you know, Shadowrun exists. Or sorry, New York exists in Shadowrun. Um, but I think that there is a, there's like a shared amount of ownership over the setting that we all have around the table because it's our city that we live in. And so that I think provides another way that like all of the gears sort of line up. We build that mind share around the table. Like we're in a place where even though it's a hundred years in the future, we live. And so we get to share a lot of jokes and insights and stories about that and both make inside jokes to our friends who also live in New York. And I think like invite people who don't live in New York to our New York in a way, even though, uh, you know, it's uh, partially flooded and <laughs> is uh, literally run by the NYPD. Well, I guess that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it fair to say that Shadowrun is a near future setting? I, I realize that you might be the one person who has like a, a distinct opinion on whether that's true. Six E just came out. Uh, Shadowrun Six E came out, and I think it takes place in like 2080, which, like, I think that's yeah. that's near I'll live future. That long. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's a lot nearer future than when they originally wrote it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, they wrote Shadowrun before cell phones were really a thing, or even. You know, like widely democratized personal computing was a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, but that's, you know, but this is, I don't know if we should credit Shadowrun with that. I mean, this is what's so fun about cyberpunk as a genre in like the 80s. So you know, it's not like they alone were inventing this, but they saw, it's like the gift to see 30 years in the future is not always the same value. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you could see 30 years in the future in 1640, so what? It's like, oh, a tutor will be on the throne. But if you could see 30 years in the future in 1980, that's a big, that's a big deal. And so it feels like a much further future thing than it really is because I mean, everything we do in the show, like, you know, obviously there's the fantasy element, which cross my fingers will happen today. I want magic <laughs> to be real so bad. Uh, but the, all the, the science fiction stuff, I mean, that's that's barely futuristic. Yeah. I mean, it's barely in the future. 
Taylor also gets to another thing that is a, a benefit and one of the reasons we really like the system and the setting of Shadowrun, which is we are both big cyberpunk fans. I am a huge, like I am a big cyberpunk nerd. I just, I really love the genre. I'm a big fan of sort of categorically anything that fits into it. Um, <laughs> I just really love most of the genre markers. I also really, really, really love noir i have said i think in other places that like really all i'm ever trying to do is uh dashel hammett with paperwork and ubiquitous computing like, that's <laughs> like every single thing is just that's the story i want to try to tell and Shadowrun <laughs> is a place that we can do that <laughs> mike keeps trying to put like supercomputers in franz kafka's the castle <laughs> yeah basically uh, <laughs> <laughs> i can't tell you how many times during float city uh, spoiler alert for Float City Arc, that, that we had, like, Mike wanted to put more bureaucracy in this story. That's <laughs> like, it's no, true. Mike, <laughs> We have to get to the fireworks factory at some point. <laughs> you know, Kafka, you don't, you never get to the castles. Like, and I'm like, us. no, it's, if we it's don't a, get to the castle, they'll kill us. It's a three-hour conversation with the manager. That is the yeah. fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> Please put a spoiler alert for Franz Kafka's The Castle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Taylor, in that case, I, I really have to thank you for being on the show and, and reining Mike in because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the fireworks factory. Part of the reason that I agree with you, Mike, that cyberpunk is fantastic and part of the reason that I wanted a Shadowrun podcast as part of GM edition was that cyberpunk is the future via the past. Like you have to think like someone in the 1980s would think of the future. And that's a fantastic mental exercise that breaks down a bit with something like still fleet. I mean, it breaks mm -hmm. down a lot. What is the difference between a near future and a super future genre? What did float city give you that fun city never could? All right. Here's <laughs> the difference. You know what? Let's give your listeners something to yell at us about. It'll drive <laughs> engagement. Uh, here's the difference between science fiction and fantasy. Obviously, these things interconnect and overlap, but the essential element of science fiction is that there's the question of, can we bootstrap ourselves out of the human condition? Whereas fantasy, fantasy storytelling is all about, as a storyteller, you have to abstract the concept of power, and that's the only way you can tell this story. And that's where magic comes from as a literary device. So I think that a lot of times, even though Shadowrun has fantasy in it, our version of Shadowrun and the world we play in is very much a, a an answer to the question of, if technology got better, would things still be bad? <laughs> you know, like, yes. Y yes. <laughs> and the answer, and we play in the world of yes, but how yes? That's, that's the, in what specific manner? But uh, Float City, then you're crossing the Clark line. You're going to a place where <laughs> science fiction is so, like the science and technology is so alien and advanced that it is effectively magic. It is fantasy, right? It is fantasy with a sci-fi skin on it, just like Star Wars or something else and the difference is is that we get to further abstract notions of power and all these uh, society and obligation and 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 all these things to more like fundamental forms that aren't mediated by like the s sigils and signs of like current contemporary life so we can have someone like the saffron and ox or the co itself and for listeners, of Saffron Knox is a big, powerful person who appears in the story. And the Co. is this company that our player characters work for, which is really like a satellite society of like colonial capitalists that's meant to resemble the East India Tea Company. 
during that American and Western European colonial age. So instead of talking about the East India Tea Company, <laughs> we just have it be this, oh, it's this, it's this magical group of space pirates that live on a set. <laughs> You know, and, and so we look, look, here's the real deal. The reason we went to Float City was because we didn't know how to record remotely and we didn't want the main canon story to be infected with bad production. And we did the same thing on Retails of Magic as well, one of my other podcasts, where we said, well, this audio might suck, so let's do a different story so that the main storyline is not infected with bad production. What we found in storytelling was that Float City let us make much bigger, grander moves and statements and vibes than the real world, quote unquote, real world of Shadowrun would allow us to. Yeah. So we went really, really huge, you know, like multiple planet and dimension spanning in Float City and like tons and tons of credit to Wythe Marshall, the writer and creator of the game, who's like a, a, a close friend of mine. And the reason we were able to play it uh, before it, it, it's even released, he was kind enough to like entrust us with his baby uh, <laughs> that like he's been writing for 10 years oh that I've gosh. been playing. Like I've been playing st versions of Still Fleet for 10, 15 years, like a long, long time. Um, but uh you know, lots and lots of credit for Wythe for being like, what does anything look like a hundred million years in the future? Yeah. Well, you can't possibly know. So <laughs> let's get weird. And Wythe, <laughs> and Wythe just, I mean, uh, Wythe is a very, very smart person. He got his PhD in anthropology and, and future food studies. Uh, he studies the, the future of farming. He like just does all of this amazing, incredible work thinking about like, what is humanity going to eat a thousand years from now? And so that's sort of like the kernel that Still Fleet is based on. And that let us turn a lot of the things, a lot of the moves, the like m metaphors that we try to get at in in Shadowrun and in Fun City, it let us abstract them even further and get so much weirder with them, almost turn them like into a Dali painting yes. uh, in a way, <laughs> uh, like try to get like really like out there and even like romantic yes. in a way that like we don't tend to do on Fun City because Fun City is about like, you know, you're in the Lower East Side. It smells like piss. It's 100 <laughs> years in the future. The Lower East Side still smells like piss. Yeah. Much more operatic, right? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's like listening to like modern like psychodrone or like Philip Glass stuff versus Float City, which is just like Italian opera <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the romantic composers and, yeah. and, you know, yeah. And because we knew it was a limited series, we knew we were going to get to end it soon. Whereas Fun City is this ongoing thing, but when you get to end something, you get to make a lot bigger moves, right? Yeah, and, and, that's, and that has nothing to do with the world or the genre. That's just a, a fact of, of the, the limited resources of living in the real world. I have, over the course of this podcast, interviewed something like two dozen game designers and four actual play DMs. And uh, every single one of them has a slightly different definition of what the word monster is. I want to know how Shadowrun and Stillfleet differ in their definitions of monster from D&D, &D, which I can give you verbatim. And I want to know how you guys, as co-GMs of this podcast, use the words or define the words monster, villain, and antagonist. Interesting. That's like the heart and soul of what I'm trying to do with this episode. And I, they're so interconnected, it's very difficult to do those in a particular order of questions. Maybe it'd be best to start from the system and work out. Wait, I, I want to know, what is the D&D &D, like, verbatim 
definition of a monster. Oh, yeah. It's super easy. It's on page four of the Monster Manual, if you, okay. if you have one and you want to look it up. It is anything with a stat block. Anything that your players might interact ah. with is defined as monster. So like an armored guard is a monster. Yep. Got it. A commoner monster. Monster. Interesting. Interesting. Right? Taylor, do you, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I could, <laughs> well, I could start, yeah. Well, I, listen, I think it's fantastic for what they're doing because they're trying to make it easy on their copywriters to get clear rules across. Right. D&D yeah. is, by and large, an Ikea manual, so it needs yeah, a way yeah. of saying this is an Allen key. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the word monster is just going to be an Allen key. Love it. The philosophical implications? Ooh, ba- ooh lots of them. A a bunch yeah. Way better. <laughs> uh, I just had a, a, a conversation. I run a, a 5e game with some close friends of mine from college who haven't ever played any tabletop role-playing before. I love those people. They asked me to run a game for them, and oh my god, it's so much fun. <laughs> I would say that my concern about playing correctly is low. Uh, like my my the amount of worry that i have that i am doing things as prescribed by manuals is non-existent (laughs) and they know this and they know that they have selected into this a game with this kind of of uh dm um establish ground rules and expectations this is important yeah Yeah. (laughs) listen if you make a good enough case i'll let you do anything um (laughs) And one of them had a question. They were like, is a mind flayer a creature? Hey there, it's Future Lucas just breaking in to remind you about making a monster's listener rewards. You like monsters? Of course you do. That's why you're here. You want monsters you can use in your games? I got stat blocks. I got lore. I got tokens. I got mythic rewards from some of the best designers in tabletop gaming. And I'm just giving them away. That's right. Just follow the link in the show notes. Give me an email address and I'll send you over a dozen bonus features from making a monster guests you can use in your tabletop game right out of the box. Don't worry. I hate spam as much as you do. I will only email you when I have something you'll love and you can unsubscribe anytime. So don't wait. Go to scintilla.studio slash monster and tell me where to send those monstrous rewards. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash monster. All right, back to the show. They were like, is a mind flayer a creature? Uh, Because one of their abilities was like any creature X, Y, Z. And I was like, I don't know. Do you think a mind flayer is a creature? And one of the guys who I play with has a background in philosophy. He studied philosophy. (laughs) Oh, no. And so we got to have a conversation about whether or not the mind flayer is a creature. So we started with, okay, when I say creature, we're like out, we're walking in the woods, and I say creature. What's the set of things that comes to mind in that setting? We're out in the city and we're walking around and and I point and I say, ah, a creature. What do you think of? A rat, maybe? A raccoon? You're out in the world of the forgotten realms and you point and you say, a creature. What's the thing that comes to mind? Is the thing that comes to mind for those characters who inhabit that setting, this being, which is known to have a culture known to have a history, known to be not only smart, but dangerously smart, do you think that they would regard that being as a creature? And they answered, no. (laughs) I want to fist fight everyone in this conversation. (laughs) You broke the game. Yes, it's a creature. It's a creature. It is obviously... The rules have... They, they, it's like monster. They're, the, the, the rules are defining categories to help you understand what your abilities can do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, God yeah. damn it. 
<laughs> I mean, that's what I'm saying. You know, like, I, like if in a situation I'm like, listen, you, you get to do whatever you want. So if you have a question about whether or not something is a creature, let's answer the question. If you tell me it's a creature, like I'm not going to argue. But if you oh want to if you want to talk about it, we will talk about it. I I think, yes, from that perspective, like, yeah, if you want to use an attack on something and yeah, use it, it's fine. Go, yeah, go for it. Like break, break the game. We ignore so much about Shadowrun that, <laughs> you know, is very, very tightly controlled. The categories are extremely strict. Mm. Every single object has a toughness and strength rating. And there is a table in the book to tell you whether the door you're in front of can survive the blast from the grenade that you're holding. Like, oh, don't <laughs> don't get me started on grenade rules in Shadowrun. It, it's uh, it's a good example of why you shouldn't write rules at all. Yeah. So I think in the broad sense, monster, villain, antagonist, it's whatever your party is currently rolling dice against. In the easy way, sure. But I have strong feelings about, like, narratively. Yes. Like, Here we what? Go. <laughs> no one listens for the easy way. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like, outside of rolling dice, mechanics, stuff like that, how, how you decide for the sake of the rules what the thing that you are interacting with is. How do you, a player, and how do the player characters appreciate the person or thing that is standing in front of them? I think of monsters as things like in Float City, the emissary. That to me is a monster. It doesn't have a human shape. It is monstrous. Uh, like in a sort of like Noel Carroll sense, it is a thing that is horrific. It causes terror. It is something that is, until you see it, somewhat beyond the, the ken of the human mind. I think a villain is someone who is usually human, but it doesn't have to be. But it is something that plots. A villain is at the top of a pyramid that your players work towards. They're planning. They have ideas. They have preferences and can make compromises. They can sacrifice. They can yield ground in order to gain what they think will be an advantage later. An antagonist is possibly literally anything, including the other player characters around the table. And I think that we are always... That like every player, every character, every object, every NPC, you're dipping in and out of friendly antagonist from antagonist to villain back and forth all the time. And I think like Taylor's specific style of play is just like it's like watching a master at work, like <laughs> watching watching our players players block your ears become best friends with people who they really shouldn't <laughs> because, <laughs> because because taylor is able to antagonize them and then be like no but we're friends like it's really i mean it's abusive it's an abusive relationship <laughs> i am taking advantage of their weaknesses <laughs> like their personal past members weaknesses <laughs> and fears and insecurities <laughs> absolutely a hundred percent. Some of those people, it's like unclear where the line is. Are they a friend? If not a friend, are they a, a useful relationship? Mike, um, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Golem. Okay. Is Golem a monster, an antagonist, or a villain? Oh. This, I assume, is the Lord of the Rings Golem. Yes. Not like a mutual friend we have. To we <laughs> or perhaps Golem. the the giant thoughtless creature from Jewish folklore. Oh, the Golem. No, no, no. Of the Warsaw. No, no, no. I've heard them pronounced exactly the opposite ways. 
<laughs> oh, really? Well, I, I, I had to clarify. <laughs> I'm going to say antagonist. Because the, the, the boundaries are, are messy, right? Yeah. Yeah, the boundaries are messy, except for one. Antagonist is weirder. I think what Mike said about like the antagonist can even be like a can be an institution or a structure or an idea. I think that that's true. I don't think the antagonist necessarily always has to be like what did Campbell call it, like the mirror self, the inverted protagonist, the shadow link. I, I think that the main distinction between a monster and a villain is a monster opposes the protagonist in the real. Right. Like the monster, the monster can be a hurricane. The monster can be a canyon that is difficult to cross. But whereas the villain opposes the protagonist within the symbolic order. We're about to get Lacanian, everybody. The the villain, (laughs) the villain has ideology. Right. Like the villain believes things. So like, yeah, the villain can never lay a punch, can never oppose the protagonist in the real world, in the real world of violence and matter and physical consequences. Though maybe this is a weakness of modern storytelling, including ours. One thing I hate is that in like a lot of these like super modern superhero movies, an ideological difference will be resolved with laser shooting. With out fighting, of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe that like, it is interesting to watch like heroes and villains kind of have the, uh, encompassing battle of do we resolve this within the symbolic order or in the real yeah usually through violence or through uh privation of some necessary resource for the villain i want to offer i think an extension to this which i think might be interesting for us to think about in our own games it's like i'm thinking about cthulhu an intelligent being let's say something that we understand even though we understand it to be weird and incomprehensible in some ways we like consider it as having an an interiority there is like it it, do we i think so do we not i think that cthulhu as Cthulhu create, like, yes and no, but it's like so crossing here's, so, the So, okay, so hear me out. Yeah, hear me out. So here's, so. If, we'll let... if interiority is unknowable, should we even call it interiority? Because now we're okay, talking you, about. Yeah, you're talking about what I'm going to talk about. Give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what I'm saying is, is that like, is that, is that the, the, the continuum where that interiority goes from, goes from. Uh, coherent ideology that like a human could possibly understand to just complete unknowability is the continuum on which something might also turn from villain to monster. A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, that's what makes Cthulhu, that's what makes the Lovecraftian mythos and cosmic horror, maybe my favorite genre of anything, um, so powerful is that cosmic horror was the first to be like, well... (laughs) <laughs> yes, lions are scary. But what if a lion mm. so smart <laughs> that it was as large and indifferent as the universe is to our uh, you know, human endeavors? That's even scarier than a lion. So I think it's like uh, I think it's like, you know, like if if I, for lack of a better phrase that I, I, I you know, I, I can't come up with on the spot. It's like if something has like eight dimensional ideology, even if you know somehow that there is a, a thinking and a um, there's like a, a plan, there is a want. But if it's just so removed from anything you could possibly understand, it just transitions from villain to monster. Which I think is interesting because that suggests that. It is not really about the real versus the symbolic order that the bad guy is operating in. 
What it's really about is, is it within the symbolic order that the protagonist can access? Yeah. Which is really about, like, our need to project our values outwardly. <laughs> yeah, right. Hmm. And really, perhaps we're the bad guys, Mike. <laughs> No, you're the bad guys, Taylor. Thinking about Maybe it all the time. Humanity is the virus. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to break in here because uh, I do have to institute what I call the Lovecraft protocol. Uh, oh, which is, we have to do, we have to do a shot trouble? now. Yeah. Do I have to have sex with a fish? <laughs> no. I mean, you can if you want, to. I guess. I don't know. I've um, seen some odd fish. Uh, Lovecraft comes up in, I would say, one out of every three episodes I do. And gotcha. when he does, there are some things we have to say. First oh, of yes. All, oh, sure. Yeah, of yes. course. Sure. Yeah. Right. First of all, H.P. Lovecraft, writer, commonly credited as the progenitor of the cosmic horror genre, writing in the uh, early 20th century, had as either his influences or became an influence for people who espoused ideologies that were extremely thick into eugenics and racism and xenophobia. And uh, by mentioning Lovecraft, we are not endorsing those philosophies. However, huge, no. huge, huge big, fat, bad racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's I always think when we talk about the racism of Lovecraft, how strange it is, because he was so seriously onto something with his conception of cosmic horror. The, the things that need to be true in order for cosmic horror to work as an aesthetic negate all of his social categories by which he asserted his own private supremacy. I always found that really interesting with him that like if you take cosmic car at its roots, it is anti-racist in as much as it is anti-cultural. Yeah. Right? right. And yet there he was. Right. <laughs> and this is why I have to do the Lovecraft protocol is because the genre he created and the genre markers that it has and the cultural expectations that have become attached to it are really interesting in their own right. And they have enabled some really fantastic storytelling and philosophical work. And all of that, I think, is worth what did Garrett call it? bringing into um, the stage of universal acceptance, at least. So that's the Lovecraft Protocol. Sure. Uh, now we've done that. <laughs> we can move <laughs> on. We were actually about to make a, a pretty interesting turn. We had talked about monster villain and antagonist as Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Now we're going to talk about as... what Lacan called the mirror stage. <laughs> <laughs> we could. Should we? We might. Um, <laughs> nah. Well, that's a, that's a different episode. Uh, one of the things that has also come up as a part of this exploration is uh, is the definition of hero and whether that uh, is by necessity tied to the definition of monster and or villain and or antagonist. In as much as systems give you a definition of monster, they also give you a definition of hero. Does Shadowrun and Stillfleet give you a definition of hero, or do you have to create one from the definitions that you have for monster, villain, and antagonist? I don't think they do. I know for a fact Stillfleet does not. And in fact, Stillfleet implicates your character immediately within character creation because you are ostensibly, you're encouraged to be part of this big company of like far future space capitalists. They're like slavers. Like they have, yeah, like they're, they're bad. Like yeah. by our moral standards, the co, the company, uh, is bad. I mean, obviously, you could take a character and put them in that world and not have them work for the co, but very much it's encouraged, like you start out this way. It's a good hook for adventure stuff. D&D &D definitely doesn't, right? And Shadowrun, Shadowrun very much encourages you to be a criminal. I mean, Shadowrun is the, is the name of a certain kind of crime in the world. Yeah. <laughs> You're going on a Shadowrun, and the criminals are called Shadowrunners. In a lot of Shadowrun games, you see the same attitude develop, which is I'm a player character living in a dystopia. The corporations control everything. 
it's very hard to get by. You have to do whatever you, you look out for number one. You do whatever you can to like make sure that you survive by hook or by crook or literally just, just by crook. Um, <laughs> so what you get is you get a lot of games that I have described as capitalism made me do it the game. <laughs> And that people just wash their hands of any moral consideration because they have to do whatever they have to do to survive. It doesn't matter what it is that they're doing. Like the world is bad. And so they have to be bad in the world because that's the only way that you make it. Are those heroes? They are certainly protagonists. Maybe that is a distinction. Like, do you, you know, I don't know. Um, God, it's also so complicated because we have superheroes. So like superheroes, <laughs> like a very specific kind of thing, but most of them are just like libertarian fantasies. It's like a libertarian wet dream, just like in a, in spandex. Are most superheroes good people? No, I, definitely not. Are they otherwise like heroes and heroic in that they are like doing good? <laughs> Hero is what we call propaganda, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, there's, you know, there's protagonists. There is a figure in a story that you are supposed to watch go through the structure of the story. You know, this is the character that leaves their normal existence, goes into a place that just so happens to resemble a lot of the internal conflicts maybe they were experiencing, and then comes out both a master of the past self and the the new self as crafted through the road of trials of the adventure. You know, I mean, whoever goes in that circle, that's the protagonist. They're only a hero if they are the gallant in a goofus and gallant propaganda dichotomy of what society is telling you you should be. And I will also say that, like, even though Dungeons & Dragons doesn't outright say you got to be good you got to be bad whatever but i will point out that like and, and i don't i don't want to be one of those people that's like trying to cancel D because it's a colonial product i mean obviously it is here we are you know everything <laughs> we make is but like <sighs> uh, uh it is funny to me that like the basic adventure in D, you go into a dungeon or a tomb take a treasure out is like a fundamentally postmodern colonial way to see the world but it, it is a capitalist realist thing like that is a an object defined by culture is only as valuable as you can sell it in the marketplace there is no inherent or sacred value to anything except your advancement within the market by however you arrange the cultural detritus that you received when you came into the world. That is fundamentally a capitalist realist ide ideology uh, and very colonial. I mean, you know, people that wrote D&D are basing this on what's the uh, – uh, God, oh, shame on me for not uh, – like they're basing it on like the British – fantasy adventure tradition which absolutely came out of the british empire and their tomb robbing in egypt and their rape of all these other uh, colonized places right gentlemen it, explorers of the absolutely uh, 19th century uh, yeah what which... was the what was the john carpenter of mars writer oh uh more not moorcock was it no no i'm thinking h writer haggard and that's shame not right. on me I don't remember. For not remembering. But it's coming out of that adventure tradition. Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's coming out of I that got tradition. It first. Yes. Very much like 
oh, we got people from quote unquote civilization going out into uncolonized lands and taking all the money from their. I mean, graves. it's that same libertarian <laughs> fantasy. It's the like the yeah. like the powerful individuals choosing to consort together to use the resources that they gather themselves in order to gain some security for themselves. You can very much play <clears throat> play a D and D game where you join a collective and like help. Uh, you know. Uh, engage in some mutual aid i think it's not often the case and it certainly is not encouraged by uh the writing in the book yeah just like hp lovecraft like created this genre that supersedes and negates his own horrible political beliefs like the early days of tabletop role-playing games even though those adventures and a lot of those ideas are like dripping with the sort of awful self-centeredness of their cultural origins the tools that they created are just like are fantastic and are no way i think weighed down by any of that ideology even if you want to do like rules as written D D game you can like you can make anti-capitalist anti-colonial um uh adventure and world and characters out of it which is one thing i love about the tabletop role playing the yeah, whole, i was gonna say a lot, I, a lot of people are now too it's very exciting i've talked to some of them within the last week <laughs> one of my favorite actual play shows a campaign uh, is you know explicitly anti-colonial and anti-capitalist, and so many are. And Shadowrun definitely incur- you know the way we play it. Well, maybe I shouldn't say so much <laughs> 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 about that. Now, yeah, I'll be quiet about how that relates to Fun City because I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want any of the the players to listen <laughs> and get spoiled on what we've got coming oh, up. I hope they will. I want to hear all the nice things I have to say about them. I'm holding the 6E uh, Shadowrun Core Rulebook, and I'm I'm reading the introductory section, oh, which the is miles of text. The life you have left, <laughs> um, and it's about sort of like what the world is like and why you might choose to not be uh, a normie, Good. as it were. It is very much couched in the language of like, um, your hand feels forced. I mean. What else will you do in this world? You have so few choices <laughs> if you make the one big choice to play by the rules. And so why not not play by the rules? I'm really glad that I talked to you guys last because I feel like we've we've done what I've been trying to do in the last four interviews, but we've done it like all at once. Um, I will be putting a big fat spoiler alert at the beginning of this episode because I can't do what I think I have to do with you guys without saying that because I do I want to talk about the the Saffron Anox's offer for the people who may not have taken my advice and like immediately stopped what they are doing listened to all of Float City and come back to this precise minute in the podcast can you thumbnail for me what the Saffron Anox is the Saffron Anox is a canonical character in the world of Stillfleet Wythe wrote him in into the core rulebook so when the game comes out and people are able to buy it they will be able to open up the book and they will see like a description of who and what the saffron anox is our saffron anox is slightly different from that a lot of what wythe was writing was coming together as we were making our show so there are sort of like parallel constitutions of saffron anoxes a lot of the, the big items are the same the saffron anox is a trade lord, like maybe a feudal king, maybe like a Jeff Bezos, someone who just is engaged in the trade of goods. He's not a company, but he's like a a person who manages the flow of items across many locations. The two most closely tied locations to the Saffron Anox are two planets, Rigamont A and Rigamont B, otherwise known as the twins. And they're these two uh, twin planets with a moon between them that he 
keeps in balance through his force of existence, through his sheer force of will. He provides them not only with atmosphere, but also with things. People live on these planets. They need food. They need shelter. Uh, they need clothing, etc., etc. He is able to do this because he exists on multiple dimensions. When we see the Saffron Anox in the world of our game, he kind of is like this semi-featureless slate or blue-gray like man shape, like a peacock blue mannequin. But in reality, he is what in the game is described as an extra-dimensional entity. He exists across time and space in a way that is difficult for most other three-dimensional sapients, as they're described in the game, to like comprehend or understand. And he is also just exceptionally smart beyond being p powerful in the way that he can use time and space as a material in a way that us three-dimensional beings uh, have a hard time understanding or you know being able to do through the course of float city <laughs> it is a classic like la mid-century detective story this guy hires him to go do a job they get framed for murder they found out that the guy that hired them is the guy that did it and the guy that did it obviously is the saffron and ox who was trying to use our player characters to start a war on a planet. He wanted to add this planet to his trade network. Uh, and through a very complex series of events, this would tip the dominoes in his favor and that planet's economy would fall under his territory. The players discover this and they begin to work their way up through the organization to get to the Saffron and Ox. There was their immediate manager named Algar. Then there was his boss named Hracht. And then above Hracht... <laughs> was the Saffron and Nox, and that these are the three people between the players and the top level of the conspiracy. I forget who wrote it, but this is based on someone wrote a scheme on how to design um, conspiracies between villains uh, in oh. TTRPGs, and this was very much designed using that as an inspiration, and it is called The Conspiramid. Posted to Andy Slack's gaming blog Halfway Station in 2018, the Conspiramid and the Vampiramid are two complementary ways of designing not individual aggressors, but systemic aggressors mm. in uh, tabletop role-playing games, and I use it a lot. This goes back to like some of the most fundamental storytelling stuff, right? Mike and I wrote these three characters to be like, each one of them is going to have an attitude towards power. Algar is like this low-level bureaucrat who just believes like, I'm a good person if I do my job. If I do what my boss says, I'm good. I'm just, he's the, I'm just doing my job guy. Uh, Hracked, the guy above him, he's where we start to like really crack into like the ideology of the layers, the ruling class. So Algar represents like the petite bourgeois. <laughs> and when I, when I say represent, I do not mean that Mike and I are just like, writing out people we hate and then drawing lines <laughs> to character names and be like, this one represents this. It's like, no, it's like, how do people relate to power structures that they're in that have done bad stuff? Like, what do people say? The thing that Taylor and I talk about a lot when we're writing villains is what does this kind of person want? Yeah. And then, yeah. and then we look at the other characterizations that we have for those characters already. Like, we think it would be neat if they had these various sort of quirks and characteristics so like then you just figure out what kind of momentum you get building to arrive at a full character it's like well they look like this they have this kind of like speech quirk or they live in this weird place or they look like this they really like this kind of thing <laughs> they are this kind of person that kind of person in this situation would want probably this kind of thing and then when you smash that two those two things together what kind of character do you get 
So Heract is like the middle guy. He's kind of like a real zealot. Everything I've done is justified because we're trying to help people. And he remembers when it was really bad and you weren't there. So he's going to actually, he's here to save you from your own inaction. Yeah. Like you got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And like, if people need to get hurt in the process, then like people are going to get hurt anyways. They might as well be hurt making sure that in the long run, things are better. Yeah, and I think that, like, that is where most villain ideology stops in a lot of stories, right? If you watch modern superhero movies, that's the villain ideology. The villain ideology is, I'm trying to help everyone, right? In the Marvel movies, right, it's like Thanos. Loki and Thanos are like, I'm trying to actually help you, but I, <laughs> and I know the best way, and I, all my things are justified because the way I build things is going to be better for you. But that's correct, right? We wanted to push beyond that. And then beyond her act is the Saffron and Ox, finally the prime mover. But the final episode is the conversation with the Saffron and Ox, and then it's, it's consequences. And I really, I cannot begin to tell you how fun uh, <laughs> recording this episode was. Because I, we built the Saffron and Ox to be, in one way, extremely simple, and in another way, extremely complicated. I wanted to play the Saffron and Ox completely honest. The Saffron and Ox in that last episode does not tell one lie to anybody. He is a top villain that is giving a completely faithful and non-manipulative accounting of his reasons and his actions and what his incentives are and why he's doing what he's doing. And what he's doing is this. He is trying to create a civilization-spanning economy under his guidance and in his control because he believes that it is beautiful because he wants it. It sounds easy like to fight against that ideology. Like, oh, you're just manipulating me because you want it? Go to hell. But I wanted to have a conversation and offer a choice to the players because the choice is like, look, under this thing that I think I want and is beautiful, Everyone will be better off. Like, Heract is correct when he says, like, if, if the Sapphire Knox is in control of everything, everyone will be safer. Because in this world, there was a recent cataclysm, which Mike alluded to, that hurt a lot of people. And now things have been solved a little bit, but the cataclysm could happen again at any moment. At any moment, the, the prime technology in this world that allows everyone to have economic opportunities could go away and shutter all the worlds and close them off to each other. The Sapphire Knox can stop that. And that will help everyone. Now, he's not doing it for those reasons, but who cares? So the Saffron Knox says, come and work with me, and you can help me achieve this vision. You're very powerful. You're very smart. You're very resourceful. I can use you, and we can achieve this together. It will help everyone. I'm not doing it for that reason. I think, and in looking at this in like a multidimensional way, this is extraordinarily beautiful. This is an aesthetic project. The, the Saffron Knox is built to force the listeners and the players to acknowledge this about themselves, that your own principles are also aesthetics. Because if you try to fight the Anox in a principled way, you are dooming billions of people to their death. By what principle possibly would that ethical election be allowed? In what possible way is that moral? You have to admit that if you're going to stop this guy from saving all these people, you're doing it because you just don't think it's nice. You don't think it's pretty. You don't think it's beautiful. And I wanted to force the listeners and the players to acknowledge that at the end of the day, there are no principles. All ethics are aesthetics. And the only way that those different aesthetics can 
interact is through the application of power in the real. <laughs> the the Anax as a character forces the listener and the players to take a position on the proposal that Heract makes, which is, listen, are we going to start a war? Probably. Yeah. Will people die in that war? It's pretty much guaranteed. Is that better or worse than not starting the war, not being able to put a bunch of planets into one trade network, and then broker this sort of like central planning thing that doesn't <laughs> then depend upon technology that could turn off at any moment, thus stranding people for God knows how long. Could be hundreds of years, could be thousands. And so it's easy to be like, no, like what? War? Bad. War yeah. is bad. Don't kill people for like the promise later of maybe things will be good. Except then you go and talk to the Anox and he's like, listen, not only like I got it. Like not only will things be good, like it's going to be beautiful. Like, yeah, some people will die. Not only will it be good, it's going to look dope as hell. <laughs> I mean, you will never be able to see it, but it's going to look, just trust me, just imagine something that looks really good. Yes, people will die, yeah. but imagine something that's going to look really good. And then it forces you to think like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The world has nothing to offer this guy. He's essentially a demigod. So why, why? Why conflict and all? Why do anything? You don't need anything. You, you, don't even, you don't need food. You don't need water. You're safe. You're fine. You're powerful. What do you need? <laughs> no, no, nothing. It's beautiful. You know? And, and, like, and I think that this gets at so many things. Number one, why does the ruling class hold on to power in our society? They don't need it. They're already rich. They're fine. Jeff Bezos <laughs> could quit, never work a day in his life, never exert any control over another human being as long as he lives, and he will be great. There's no reason to maintain that level of power unless you just want to. You just think it's cool. So how do you deal with someone like that when it's not, hey, listen, I know we all want the same thing here. I'm sure we can work it out. You know? no, no, absolutely you don't not. Want thing at all. <laughs> not at all. You don't. They want one thing. You want another. And there is no electoral process or disagreement or uh, there is no mediation between the two. It is going to be which one of you can get rid of the other first. And that, and I really feel, I, me personally, Taylor, not just in storytelling, but in the world, that is fundamentally the question that our society is facing right now is like, we have got to acknowledge that at some level, and it's always kind of like this, it's them or us. And I wanted the Saffron and Ox to like enact that choice onto the players and forcing them to realize that was also the choice all along. I don't know if it worked. <laughs> because then you have this thing of like the structure of narrative and the nature of genre encourages the players to just be like, obviously we're right and you're wrong. You're the bad guy. Just like a character has plot armor, sometimes a character has a big plot target on their chest. Yeah, yeah. you, you push against the, the expectation and the momentum of narrative, and especially the momentum of tabletop role-playing, which is like, you're standing in the room with the big bad guy. Like, this is the big bad man who wanted to do a bad thing, who framed you. Like, kill him. You have to, you, you, everybody rolls initiative, you take turns, and you fight. And then you get this interesting thing of like, you do, you kill him, you perhaps leave open the threat of another tachyon quake down the road. Uh, you have killed someone who everybody knows can create a connection between economic partners that doesn't rely on pre-existing technology. You've also literally destabilized two planets that are now breaking apart <laughs> in the midst of space. And all that of the was, people... 
and all the people who live what on them are di- are going to die. They're unless very, they... very cruel of us to do that yeah. to the players. <laughs> so but, it's like you know, thematically it works because like you just don't live in a world where you get to make big moves like this and it doesn't affect a lot of people. I cannot help but wonder the ways in which it would be equally interesting if they had said like, okay, like, yeah, we'll work with you. Like, then what happens? Does this a Saffron and Ox like, no, just kidding. <laughs> and then he's and then he's chosen to get into a fight that he could potentially lose. And so, like, what is the sort of like background there? Like, is that hubris? Or do they say, like, you know what? No, just in general, no. Uh, yeah, you know, which is what they went with, I think. <laughs> yeah, just like, no, nah, not vibing it. <laughs> yeah. Or like, we're not going to take your deal. We're also not going to try to stop you. Like, oh. this is just... Like, sort of choosing a kind of middle path of, like, you know what? Uh, as Remy would say, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think that, like, the, the players... The, the players... The idea was to give the players a... Um, like, a complicated choice. And to put that complicated choice up against the narrative momentum of a tabletop role-playing story. Yeah. And to see... You know, whichever way they went, uh, whether or not it was like, yes, we'll work with you. No. And you have to die or no. And also we're just going to leave like yeah. you do. You do. You we're going to just go do us to to figure out. Yeah. Like what what are the repercussions of that? Um, you know, I could speculate endlessly about the other two options and what may have come to pass. But, uh, you know, that's that's basically fan fiction at this point. Um, and, you know, I think the the one that we got was yeah it was interesting um i you know i really liked the ending of the show i think the players did a really really good job both on the macro level of like what the story needed and both and like individually what their characters wanted and needed to do um i think it turned out really well i think they made some great they made big swings they made great choices oh yeah yeah Uh, as much as i loved marcus and connected with him immediately uh i I looked at the way Remy went out and I thought it was always going to be this way. Oh, but to answer your earlier question, um, the, no, like I, before the recording, like we had discussed, like, here's what these characters want. Here's what they care for. Like, here's, you know, here's their vibe. Here's their ideology. But then in the, in the actual episode, that's entirely improvised. Right. I didn't write out a single line of dialogue or anything. That's hugely impressive. At the risk of bringing religion into the conversation, there was a portion of what he said that, to some definitions of the term, sounded like paradise. So I think the idea was that if you if you work for me, I can promise you a lifetime of fulfilling work toward a worthwhile goal. And for some val- for some definitions of paradise, that's heaven. Um, was that part of the plan? Uh, is that something you're comfortable with? Uh, and it, like, does that add something to that that is useful or worthwhile? Well, yeah. I mean, hmm. I think when we talked about it, we talked about it in very like dialectical materialism terms. <laughs> yeah. And like the jokes that we made in the fun chatty afterwards were all about central planning and about like, to what degree is this a version of, of like some yeah. sort of weird author- authoritarian leftism? In fact, does this resemble fascism? Does this resemble communism or socialism? 
And those are the terms that we've talked about it so far. I think I had not considered the sort of spiritual implications beyond the idea of like the Anox is so powerful. He is effectively a god and he's like inviting you into his house. Right. I mean, there are Deva in his house. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they are. They are religious devotees. Yeah. Yeah. So this is you've hit upon the one part where I think that like the theme sort of falls apart because there is a fundamental difference between what happened with the Sapphire Knox and what we in the real world had to deal with, right? As the person who wrote a lot of the Sapphire Knox and played it, I can tell you, exactly. 100% authority, he was telling the truth. And that that is what was going to happen, that is why he was doing it, and it would have it would have worked, okay? The problem is, is that we in our lives, and all the listeners experiencing this, we are all the players, <laughs> we don't know. And the players did not. The players had been lied to before by him and the other members of the conspiracy. And the players don't know if that's true. When the neoliberals and the techno-utopians tell us, if you just let our institutions grow and encompass everything of your life, it will be better. We don't know if they're telling the truth or not. Right? So we can't make that. I believe, for, In my position as the person who knows the Saffron and Ox was telling the truth. What the players did is horrible. (laughs) Like they hurt so many people. For what? They're completely ungrounded principle that there just shouldn't be a person in charge. Well, that's insane. That's killing billions of people just so you can feel good about something you made up that uh, everyone else didn't agree to. That's wild. You know, but from our perspective, from human beings' perspective, (laughs) we're being given the Safran and Knox's deal from the ruling tech class. And we have no reason to believe that they're telling the truth. And so that's a major disconnect that we can't really solve for. Like the listener doesn't know. Only I know for a fact (laughs) that it's actually a pretty good deal. (laughs) And that what happened is a terrible tragedy. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, and you do the calculation of like the steep costs on either side. Like it's really, it's like a very, it's, is there going to be a rule for this too? It's sort of like a complicated trolley problem, really. (laughs) It's not complicated at all. Like, yeah, well, okay. There's no yeah. trolley problem protocol. Yeah. Okay. It's the simplest trolley problem ever. Yeah. But from the players, it's difficult. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know who said it. Some enlightenment person was like, or maybe it was back to the Greeks. Oh, the best government would be the enlightened despot. The, the ideal government oh, yeah. is like the single person in charge who makes all the right decisions, which doesn't exist in the real world. But we kind of created one in, in fiction, which is very unfair. So, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, very unfair. It's very unfair. It's like Escher drawing these impossible shapes. Like, look at it. Yeah, it looks cool, right? Walk, what do you walk, go, you walk up that staircase. Why don't you go ahead and <laughs> yeah. have a have a little stroll around this uh, building that I drew? Yeah. So putting like a real world ethical like uh, um, uh, argument like on this fictional thing is dangerous because it's like trying to build one of those infinite staircases. We lied to you. We lied. That's a trick you can do in audio that does not apply to real world objects. I think we do this a lot in Shadowrun too, which is just like, there's no good choice. Yeah. There's no good choice. There's every choice you have is kind of bad because uh, world bad. It, <laughs> ba- like just it bad. Like the circumstances have been allowed to get to this point where you want to act appropriately. You want to act morally or ethically. You want to judge. You want to be in possession of information that then in informs your actions so that after you take those actions, you feel good about the actions that you've made. Whoops. Turns out you can't. But I think like the, like 
the doesn't trick really of, matter. Yeah. The, the, trick, <laughs> yeah. the trick of storytelling, yeah. Yeah. no one cares about the architect and the computers in the Matrix. Yeah. We just want to watch Trinity and Ma- Matrix Man kiss. That's, that's all we want. You know, that's, it's why, like, that's why I watch the Matrix for the smooching. Well, you, like, it, it is. It, it is really is. We it. want the young, hot people to get together. Like, yeah, we don't give it like. Our, our emotional cores that keeps us like the thing that puts you on the edge of the seat isn't the philosophical question. <laughs> right. The thing that puts you on the edge of the seat is like, oh my god, is, is Marcus going to be okay? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, she doesn't care about having a boyfriend anymore. She just wants to help her friends. We watch a group of people become friends, and like that's that's what actually makes the yeah. juices flow along your spinal column mm-hmm. more than like you know our fancy stand-in for Jeff uh, Bezos. What, ki- what kind of fascism is this fascist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what gets. It's Mike interested. I don't know. I'll tell you as like a vote of confidence in the in the piece of art that you've created. Yes, absolutely. What happened to Marcus was the reason that I had to like stop what I was doing for a good couple hours and process yeah. the end of this story. I think that the the questions that we're having are the reason that I'm still thinking about it now. So I think you've you've been able to do both, which is fantastic. Yeah. And the way that you've been able to do it in this medium is so critically important at this point in history. I'll also tell you that uh, maybe it was because of the presence of the Deva, uh, and it was certainly due to my own background and the the things that I brought to this story. I read... I read the Saffron Anox as a metaphor for the divine. And that wasn't the only reason. Most of it was down to your performance, Taylor, that I fully believed him. My reading of the situation was that he was going to fully do this. And so it was weird to me that the the players made the choices that they did. And I I think we've explored that. I just like, I wanted you to have that as creators. Like, this is how it hit me. Yeah, thank you. So, and that wasn't an accident. I mean, we are well aware of like, we're not the first people to live in this world where the ruling class is trying to convince us to just let them be God. You know, I mean, that's a t- tale as old as time when it, when you get power imbalances through human history. But no, I mean, that's it's all it's all wrapped up in the same stuff. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you guys about the thing that you've made, because I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very, very long time. Thanks for having us. We get to do this very rarely. <laughs> Usually it's like me and Taylor in his kitchen being like, oh, and then, and then this, could, you know, and like, oh, what if they want this? Yeah. So like, you know. what kind of cool gun can they have? Yeah. Like, we don't sit debating Sartre. Like, we like, oh, what if a gun was big? <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have someone ask like good questions uh, to you know help us sort of refine some of these things if that's all i can add to the world then uh, then i will have done something worthwhile if you are still here thank you for listening to this the final episode of making a monster game master edition i want to thank all six gms who made this mini series possible nikki yeager dan Locke, andrew coons cassie roll taylor moore and mike regnetta if, if you've listened to this conversation and it hasn't been spoiled for you uh, go listen. Go listen to Float City. Go listen to Fun City. They're both great. <laughs> if you want something with an end, go for Float City. If you want to join with us on this big journey um, of Cyberpunk uh, New York 2101 or 21, what is it, Mike? We haven't made the official transition yet, but it will be 2102 in the yeah. the second season, quote unquote. Then listen to Fun City. Uh, and, you know, Fortune Horse. We make other shows as well. Uh, if you want some like. Uh, like comedy first uh wild and crazy fantasy world building you gotta listen to rude tales of magic 
And we just launched a new show about an intrepid crew of explorers having episodic missions on a spaceship to other planets as if they are going through some sort of trek amongst the stars. <laughs> and it's called, Oh, These, Those Stars of Space. Oh, I'm Taylor.biz on Twitter. You can find uh, Fun City uh, pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts. You can also find us uh, at funcity.ventures in your browser and at funcityventures on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Twitch at Mike Rugnetta. Um, I also make uh, some YouTube videos every once in a while, uh, youtube.com forward slash Mike Rugnetta. Um, and... Um, what else do I do? Uh, that's let's let's leave it there. If you like what you've heard on Making a Monster and you want to support the show, please share it with the people you play games with. Your recommendation proves this show is worth the time and attention, and will help you both get more out of your monsters and the games you play. If you want to go a little deeper and learn more about what I'm doing, you can sign up for the show's email list. When you do, you'll get free extras from my guests like 5e stat blocks, virtual tabletop tokens, and discounts on best-selling D&D products. There's more than a dozen of them now, and more on the way, and you can get them by following the link in the show notes. And if you really like what I'm doing and you want to support it, you can sign up for the show's Patreon. There's exclusive content, including Taylor's insights on the past and future of actual play podcasting, bonus episodes, and a Discord community just waiting to hear your perspective on monsters in TTRPGs. Just visit patreon.com slash scintilla studio. That's patreon.com slash S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A studio. Next time on Making a Monster. I have to just be honest, like Fizzman is notably a forgetful character to the point of, I think, killing himself trying to cast Featherfall because instead of casting Featherfall, he actually just summons feathers. And <laughs> it's and that's how he dies. But his human <laughs> form is so messy. And and how do you write quips in a book that who's supposed to be kind of knowledgeable about dragons with someone who can't remember maybe what a dragon is or how to cast any of these spells or who this person even is. Um, 